Hello and welcome back to Community Connection. I'm Iowa City Mayor Bruce T. We're using this platform to showcase how our community is stepping up during a time of crisis as the coronavirus pandemic continues to impact the Iowa City area. Among those leading us through these uncertain times is the Jones County Public Health Department. From tracking active cases to coordinating resources with medical providers, this department is among the most crucial links in the chain of command. Joining me to discuss the response to COVID-19 is Johnson County Public Health Director, Dave Coach. Thanks for joining me, Dave. Thank you for having me, Mayor Teague. I really appreciate it. Well, I'll tell you that you have, how long have you been with Johnson County Public Health? I started uh, down here in 2012 as community health manager and then the director since uh, 2017. So about two and a half years in this role. Okay, so is this your first kind of major emergency where the EOC is all activated and, and such? Um, you know, either good or bad, it's, it's not. Um, <laughs> I have had experience with this before. In 2008, in the, the floods of Cedar Rapids and Iowa City, I was very involved in that in a previous role. And in 2009, um, I was with Lynn County Public Health when we had the H1N1 uh, outbreak. And then um, down here in 2015 with the mumps outbreak at the University of Iowa campus. So, yeah, this is uh, this is unique in a lot of different ways, actually, um, where the others were were more um, specific to a state or a region or a country where COVID-19 literally is affecting every single person, not only in our community here across the state, across the United States, but across the globe. So in that respect, it's very unique. Yeah, this is a pandemic, as you say, it affects across the, across the globe. And so, but your experience, of course, in the various areas that you just mentioned, have kind of prepared you a little bit for this. What are some of the roles um, of Johnson County Public Health right now when it comes down to the positive cases? How are you notified? And how do you, what's the process from there? Well, the, the part of the role of any local public health agency is obviously uh, in preparation. So this is part of our responsibility as public health, especially local public health, is to prepare for these types of events. And so we, we work with all of our community partners, the emergency management, uh, all of the hospitals, first responders, uh, the nonprofit community, businesses. And so we periodically um, have drills that we will set out at the emergency operations center, roughly eight of us, and really work through different scenarios. Um, but to go back to your other question, uh, Bruce, with, with kind of how this process specifically works and, and our role here at public health in terms of the investigations. So let me just explain that process real quick. So if an individual has signs or symptoms, they are to call their healthcare provider. And then it's the healthcare provider's determination um, based off some criteria, whether that individual would be asked to come in for a test. Once that individual is, is tested and it's positive, then that result gets reported um, from the laboratory, whether that's the state hygienic laboratory or a private laboratory is, is reported to the Iowa Department of Public Health. And then once the state receives that information, they put it into a system. It's called the Iowa Disease Surveillance System. 
And that system is utilized by all 99 counties. And so this process is the same for every county in Iowa. But once that result gets put into the system, then our staff, our disease prevention specialists, will be notified of those positives. And then we make contact with those individuals. So what that looks like is we'll call them up and we go through about an hour um, on the phone with them going through uh, a form that we ask a lot of different questions. We also get, get all of those close contacts and then make contact with them. We talk about mitigation strategies. We talk about um, isolation, all of those things that uh, are, are so critically important for individuals to understand. You just mentioned uh, kind of the tracing of the coronavirus from those that they've come in contact with. I understand that you increase your disease investigation staff to kind of help with that. And, and what does that look like? What, what are they doing once they understand that there's a COVID positive individual and some of the people that they come in, come in contact with? Yeah, that's a great question. So early on in this event, around March 10th, 9th, actually March 8th is when we had our first case. Um, that first week, um, as you know, Johnson County had more cases than any other county in the state. And so we were fortunate that uh, Iowa Department of Public Health has six epidemiologists that are um, around the, the state and they have a number of counties that they assist with. And so we had two of the state's epidemiologists embedded physically in our building with our own disease prevention specialists. So there were four individuals that first week that were really making all of those calls and contact tracings. Um, and then as other cases um, shown up in, in other counties, they obviously had to um, assist those counties that just don't have the same capacity perhaps that larger public health department would have. And so then we kind of redirected some of our own staff and have trained additional internal staff to help with our uh, disease investigation. And so right now we've got five individuals that are doing that full time. Uh, we've got a couple that are specifically working on specific cohorts, for instance, the long-term care facilities. If there was any positives there, um, we're working very closely with uh, the uh, administrators in those facilities uh, because we all realize that that's a very vulnerable population. And we want to do absolutely everything that we can uh, to keep the virus out of those facilities. But really, um, those calls, you know, that, that's what they're doing all day long um, and all weekend long as we get new cases. They, they simply don't stop on Friday and start again Monday because of the number of cases that we have coming in over the weekend. We would just get behind very quickly. And so they are working seven days a week since this has started. Um, and so we, we recognize the stress that that puts on them as well and try to find additional staff internally to help out. I can only imagine that that's a, a never ending process to try to track all the individuals or even uh, kind of a select group when you're thinking about exponential growth and even you know trying to contact the individuals uh, the names that they gave you that they were in close contact with and with and I understand that you really can't go after every individual case that comes your way. Yeah, that's a good point. Really, um, early on, we were trying to do that. Um, to be honest, that's that's part of their role during these investigations. And remember that uh, Iowa Department of Public Health has over 50 communicable diseases that we are required to do contact tracing and surveillance on. This is just one. Um, but really, it's, it's important to understand that early on, we were contacting 
and asking those questions of all of those contacts, not just family members. Now, when the, the widespread, the, the community spread uh, was so wide throughout the county that Iowa Department of Public Health really um, phased that back to just close contacts and family members. And even just with that, um, it can be overwhelming, but certainly the, the philosophy there is once it's out in the community and widespread, um, it's really, we're not in the prevention mode anymore. We're, we're really in the mitigation and what we can do to slow that spread down. And, and I could appreciate not being able to reach out to everybody, but I would imagine if it's like a Tyson situation, you know, you have, you know, the individuals that are family members and you can probably go a little bit beyond that, but at least within a facility, you can kind of trace it. So if someone is a part of a healthcare facility, um, then you can probably go to their department and that type stuff. And, and that's a good point. I mean, in, in the businesses that are still operating, that still have to operate the essential services, whether that's healthcare or uh, food production, um, it, it, it is much easier to work with those facilities to be able to either do mass testing um, perhaps, or certainly to be able to share the, the importance of, of um, isolating, of um, assessing your signs and symptoms, those types of things to, to again, try to, try to reduce that um, widespread um, that the virus just, you know, it, it's very easy for this virus to spread. Um, and that's the other thing with this being a novel virus. We're learning more and more as scientists and the medical community is learning more and more every day about how quickly this spreads, how it spreads, how long the virus lives on different services, what can protect us and what doesn't protect us so well as far as face masks and all of these things. And so, you know, um, I'm sure down the road in a year or two, we'll know much more about this virus. It's at this point, I think uh, those decisions are being made with the best available data that we have. We're in a meeting every day at 3 p.m. Monday through Fridays where you're a part of that meeting and you're helping us to understand just how ever-changing the rules are and the recommendations are for the coronavirus. Definitely, it's a learning process, learning in, in, in the process. Um, it is never ending. Uh, it seems like there's something new all the time coming up. With this being novel virus, uh, we don't know a lot about it. And early on, our messaging was really trying to emphasize the fact that we don't have all the answers and the recommendations that we put out today may change tomorrow. And that's that's something that is hard to understand, I think, for the general public. Um, but it, it was just a fact of this particular virus and, and any really novel virus. I know in 2008, when I was working um, with the flood situation, our messaging was literally changing by the hour as the predictions for the river were not completely accurate uh, or there was forecast of rain. Uh, one night we got two inches and the river rose three feet overnight. And so there's just a lot of unknowns. And I think that makes people uneasy as well and frustrating to be quite honest with you, which I totally understand. It, it's hard from our standpoint as well when we don't have all the answers and when, when the guidance from the CDC and Iowa Department of Public Health changes, uh, we have to, you know, share that information and share those changes. And so as we're learning more, um, the messaging changes and and that will continue. I mean, we're not through this yet. And, and no doubt there will be new guidance and new directions that we'll get that we'll try to convey as well. 
When I think about the floods, as you just alluded to, there, there was a playbook from, uh, what, 1993, in a way, when we had the floods then. And then in 2008, you know, the 500-year the flood or whatever happened. But, you, but this is so different. There's really no playbook that we've experienced here locally within uh, anyone's lifetime. No, there really is not. Uh, that's a good point that you bring up, Bruce, because uh, there have been devastating floods over the last hundred years that we can kind of go back to. Um, the floods are happening more and more frequently, unfortunately. And, um, you know, as, as the climate changes, as the world changes, um, we could expect to see more novel viruses as they mutate. Um, they'll come out with a vaccine. They'll find and they'll, they'll do the research and they'll have a vaccine for this. Um, just like we do for other viruses within this family. Um, but it could easily mutate and change again. But you're right. I mean, this, this pandemic is unprecedented, as we've heard for weeks now. And there is no playbook for this. Uh, we are doing the best we can. I will tell you, though, that all of the preparation that we do for this type of event is the same, no matter what that event is. So whether it's a flood, uh, a winter storm, um, uh, influenza or pandemic like we're in right now, all of that preparation that we've done for years leading up to this has been very similar. So again, going back to working with the hospitals, working with EMA, working with all of the nonprofits uh, in our community, going through those drills, you know, we, we walk through what does it look like if we've had a tornado, but then all at once there's a train that derails that has hazardous chemicals on it. You know, these are called injects when we have these drills. Um, and so it gets everybody in the room involved, right? So whether we have to shelter in place or transport or close schools down. Um, so we talk about those things. The hospitals have surge plans. So that if there's, uh, you know, Eastern Iowa airport is just up the, up the road, you know, what happens if we have a, a major plane crash? Uh, like Sioux City did decades ago. You know, what does that look like? Um, they, the hospitals have a wide service region involving multiple counties, counties that do not have hospitals. And so their surge plans really take all of those variables into account um, to be able to respond to an event like this. Now, granted, this event is hard to think up of when you're doing a drill um, I don't know if anybody would ever come up with this type of work, but I know CDC does. The CDC, when they do their planning and drilling, they have worst case scenarios. And so um, they've, they've drilled and talked about um, influenza pandemics before. You, you talk about like the greater effort that is um, happening within our community. What a lot of people out in the public don't know is that at 3 p.m. on Friday, like I mentioned before, that there is the EOC the Emergency Operations Center happening. Right. And we have all of Johnson County leadership as well as um, we, we have police and fire from different communities, including Swisher and uh, Tiffin. And, you know, all of us are there and we're talking about this on a routine basis so that we're all having the same knowledge at the same time and figuring this out together. No, that's a great point, and I skipped over that when you made that uh, comment earlier, and that's so true. Um, we do not meet on, on the weekends, but Monday through Friday at 3 o'clock, there's over 100 people on that phone call. 
and we go around the room and really um, share out what is happening, what our needs are. The hospitals share their uh, the, the PPE needs that they have, as well as long-term care facilities. Um, you mentioned uh, law enforcement and uh, fire as well. All of the schools are represented on that call as well, sharing what they're doing with their students. Um, we have transportation on that call. We have United Way, social services. So everybody, as you mentioned, uh, is talking about uh, what their needs are, and then we can um, either have a, a separate call afterwards with those individuals needing to be on that call to kind of work through that situation. That happens um, not every day, but nearly every day that an issue comes up that we'll have follow-up calls after that three o'clock briefing. It's a lot of planning going on, and I know that right now it seems like we're kind of in our peak, but who knows what we're in the hospitals there's a there's a huge concern on how they'll be able to deal with the influx because we realize that it's not only johnson county residents that they'll be taking care of especially at our state hospital which is the university of iowa hospital and clinic so right. what is the preparation happening um, for the hospitals to be able to deal with that influx yeah that's a great question and uh Certainly, um, part of their search plan is to prepare for, um, you know, a large number of people coming into their facilities. So they've done a number of things. They've really, they've reduced all non-essential uh, procedures. Uh, they've converted certain rooms and beds to negative air pressure. They have secured additional ventilators. Uh, they're constantly asking for more PPE and, and uh, Dave Wilson and, and his crew at the emergency management is doing a fantastic job in sourcing and finding uh, the PPE for healthcare providers. Uh, they're, they're working with other hospitals, not just here in Johnson County, but hospitals across Eastern Iowa. Uh, they have communication um, chains open with them as well, so that if one hospital would happen to be um, at capacity, they could shift um, patients to another hospital. Uh, so they're doing all of these things really in preparation uh, for a large number of individuals. At this point, um, they are handling that very well. They, they are not close to full capacity. Um, but as you mentioned, we don't know if we're at the peak here yet or not. I've been real impressed with the hospitals, which is the University of Iowa Hospital and Clinic, Mercy Hospital, and the VA Hospital, Veterans Administration. Very impressed at how they are coming together, collaborating, making sure that they're sharing information, That'll be helpful to all of the entities. And again, the workers there, kudos to them for being frontline workers, continuing to work. That's something that we've been, you know, saying amongst ourselves, but we, I wanted to just make sure that we took an opportunity to thank those workers at the hospitals that are really providing those critical care to not only COVID-19 individuals, but they have other operations and individuals that have critical needs as well. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, we cannot thank them enough for the work that they're doing. It is extremely stressful for them. I, uh, I, I've got several friends and, and uh, family members that are healthcare providers as well. And, um, you know, this is what their passion is. They are in this field to serve individuals to treat individuals. Um, so this is, this is what they signed up to do. However, this again for them is unprecedented. And, you know, I think 
we've seen stories across the country and world where healthcare workers also become ill and unfortunately lose their fight to, to uh, beat this virus. And so it is very serious for them. They are taking every precaution uh, that they can to protect themselves. But you're absolutely right. The, the, the community really um, needs to understand the sacrifice that they're making. They're away from their families. Uh, many of them are not even going home, uh, staying in hotels just so that there's not even a chance that they either get the virus from a family member or if they happen to have it, that they would they would share it with family members. Um, and so I think, you know, in Johnson County here and, and really in eastern Iowa, we are blessed with having three fantastic facilities just here in Johnson County, uh, two up the road in Lynn County, um, Scott County. And so, you know, we are in a very good spot as far as our healthcare providers and facilities that we have right here. But you're absolutely right. I mean, my hat's off to them as well. Long-term care providers, you mentioned them earlier as well as being a part of, you know, the conversation. So thanks to all those workers, we also have people in home and community-based services that are providing services to either hospice individuals, persons with disabilities, um, even, even, um, just some chronic uh, ill individuals within our community and they're still sacrificing and then going into work. And so hats off to all of those. When we talk about long-term care and the stats that are coming out, now the governor or Department of um, uh, Public Health at the state have new and additional matrix that they're kind of displaying or demographics that they're displaying. And one of them is talking about the ages. And I, I was surprised to see that the ages of male and female were essentially equal. But when we look at elderly people, as well as individuals that are um, black and Latino, can you tell us a little bit about what we're seeing? Because we know in other parts of the country, you know, elderly or, you know, their uh, rate is high as well as black and Latinos are disproportionately high. Yes, that's, that's a good point, uh, Mayor Teague, because it is something that we need to be aware of and do everything that we can to um, get the messaging out to those uh, individuals. Uh, the long-term care facilities early on took um, some very aggressive steps uh, to really restrict visitors, also to monitor their own staff and their own residents. So they've done a fantastic job here in Johnson County. I mean, they, they put some of these um, strategies and policies in place before we even had our first positive here. And then of course the, the daily phone calls that we have with them. But to your point uh, with black and Latino communities as well, um, we are really um, trying to do everything we can from a public health department to be able to get that messaging out. So we've got all of our documents in multiple languages on our website. Uh, we're also working internally here at Johnson County with our cultural and diversity coordinator. Uh, she's been tremendous in helping us understand how to how to get this information out in the best effective way. Royce Ann Porter, one of our board of supervisors, has also been consulted and, and is helping us uh, really identify specific ways that we can reach out um, to the communities um, that you spoke about, uh, because it is critically important. Um, what we'd love to do, and, and we've actually, um, at tomorrow's press conference, we'll have some community members as well, um, really representing uh, different populations in the community. 
And uh, hopefully all of those efforts that we're um, putting forth will help to, um, you know, really provide that information in the best available way. Earlier on, you mentioned kind of the process of someone is COVID positive, like, or think they're COVID positive, reach out to your healthcare provider, and then from there. But I can tell you that what I want to know is, what is the status of the testing kits within our community, the availability of it, as well as what are some of the eligibility criteria? I've been hearing from residents that have, you know, reached out to their healthcare provider, actually either seen them in person or via, uh, now we have this great thing called telehealth, which has been there, but now it seems like it's really prevalent uh, that it's being used, but they'll go to their healthcare provider and the healthcare provider will say to them, you are definitely COVID positive, but we won't test you. Um, mm. They're denied the test. So, you know, these are presumed positives. Can you talk a little bit about the, the, what is the criteria to even get the test and what is the availability? Great questions. Um, questions that a lot of people are asking. So let me take a couple of them here to start with. Um, the availability of testing, from my understanding, is still limited here in Iowa. Now, I do know that you see on the news um, other states perhaps uh, testing more widely than what Iowa is. Um, some of that has to do with the supplies going to those states with uh, more cases. Um, but certainly um, the, the criteria here for um, the state hygienic laboratory to test for free are very specific. And those guidelines, again, changed Friday. So um, there's really four main groups of individuals. And again, remember that the criteria is also just based on the healthcare provider's assessment of that individual. So if that individual calls them up, um, shares that they have these symptoms, but they don't meet one of these four areas, then it's up to the healthcare provider, but typically they are gonna say that, that we are not going to test you. Um, not that they shouldn't be. We would love to, uh, from a public health standpoint, be able to test many, many more people. So I don't want people to misunderstand that we're not wanting to test. We have to, we need to, to be able to fully understand this virus. Um, and, and really, quite frankly, I think we need to do this to be able to get our, our communities back to where we were before. Um, and I'm, I'm concerned that if we don't have more testing capabilities, that that's going to somehow hamper um, our communities to get back to where we were and to where we want to be. But back to those four categories, really, and, and all four of these, the only way that they're going to test is if they show signs and symptoms of a fever or any type of respiratory um, uh, symptoms. So the first one is, is the hospitalized patients. So anyone that's hospitalized that either has a fever or a respiratory illness, um, qualifies for a test. Now, again, these are qualifications through the state hygienic laboratory that would be provided for free. The second category is any of those individuals that are over 60 years of age or have underlying health conditions, again, with fever and respiratory illness. The third one is um, any individual living in a congregate setting. So again, uh, long-term care facilities, dormitories, uh, residential facilities, those types of things, if, again, they have a fever or respiratory illness. And then the last one is those essential workers, the healthcare workers, uh, first responders, um, those individuals that are working in these, those, those types of essential services, also if they had um, 
uh, fever and respiratory. So, so those are the four categories that is the guidance from Iowa Department of Public Health. Now that does not mean that a healthcare provider couldn't say, yes, we feel like you should be tested and you could go to a, they could, they could, they could pull that sample, send it to a private laboratory, um, but that is not free. That would cost the individual. Um, and so that's, that's kind of a little bit of the status right now that we have for our testing capabilities. And that's, that's likely uh, what people, what you're hearing from people saying, you know, I called my healthcare provider, they, they assured me that I probably have it, um, but they're not gonna test me, which I understand is very frustrating. Uh, and, and I just wanna reiterate that I do feel like we need to do more testing. And I think the governor feels that way and everybody else uh, feels the same way. Uh, but until those testing capabilities ramp up a little bit more, I don't know if that's gonna, if that's gonna happen. The, the important, other, important other thing to understand is really uh, not that this, I don't wanna diminish it at all, but um, about 80% of the people that do have this virus will have mild symptoms. And they, there's, I mean, there's no medications that healthcare providers can give. There's uh, no vaccination that we can administer to help prevent this. And so 80% um, of the people that do have it will have mild symptoms, be able to recover at home after a few days. Now, there are certainly individuals um, that are elderly or underlying health conditions that, um, that don't have um, you know, a quick recovery of this as well. Well, with what you just stated, I think the response that needs to be really, really clear to those that have gone and you know, the doctor has said, yes, we believe that you have COVID-19, is to really do the 14-day isolation for them to understand that they won't have a definitive test to say, yes, you have it, but we need you to act as if you do have it. And isolate for 14 days. Definitely, if you have family members that, are clo that you're in close contact with, or even co close coworkers, I think that's another you know, missing piece of you're still one of those essential workers going into the workspace, make sure that you are on some level sharing the importance of, you know, that, that you're presumed positive um, because mm -hmm. I think that is where that community spread, as you say, how are we gonna get this to stop? You know, we, people have to know that they're positive. There's asymptomatic people um, that we right. know run around. And when we're looking at the presumed positives, so you're talking about asymptomatic people, individuals that have been denied testing, you know, from, you know, the healthcare provider. So that, those are major concerns when we're talking about um, the presumed positives and those that are asymptomatic. And how are we gonna get to zero? That is our goal, right? To get to zero mm -hmm. cases in our community. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, uh... You know, I don't know if that's going to be a reality to get to zero cases uh, for sure. But, you know, you make good points, obviously. Um, if you have any of those signs or symptoms, even if you have not called your healthcare provider and been told that you probably have it, if you have any of those signs or symptoms, uh, don't go to work. Fortunately, telework now is very common across the, the community. Um, don't go out to get groceries. See if you've got uh, a family member or a neighbor or somebody that can get that, or even the, the delivery services now that are being offered uh, that can, can bring uh, the food right to your door. It is critically important um, that we really understand those mitigation strategies to um, you know, stay isolated for 14 days. 
if you have those. Even if you don't have symptoms, as you mentioned, uh, uh, there's individuals, asymptomatic individuals that uh, are carriers of the virus and could spread that without them even knowing it. And so, you know, the, the cloth face masks now that many people are wearing uh, will help as a source control. Um, staying six, six feet away. I was out uh, many times this weekend on the trails and uh, people are really adhering to that. I think, I, I don't know as if there's anybody in the community or across the state that has not heard this message. Um, and, I, and I think it's just the responsibility of each one of us individually, our own personal responsibility to really do what we can, not to think that this is, you know, oh, I don't have it. I'm not going to give it to anybody else. No. Just understand that you likely may have it, and yes, you can give it to other people, and you need to take responsibility to um, protect our elderly and, and those individuals with underlying health conditions and our more vulnerable populations. And so I, I you know, it's I don't want to I don't want to sound angry about this, but I do want people to understand that each one of us, and that's where you know earlier on we were talking about how this is different than other um, influenzas during the winter is that this literally affects every single person in Johnson County. Yes, it does. really does. There is not a single person that does not have a, a role to play in this pandemic. And I think a lot of people don't understand that or don't want to believe that, um, but it is true. And um, that message will not change. You know, we talked about messages changing from day to day or week to week, that message will not change. We all have our uh, responsibility to take action, to do what we can to protect our family members, our loved ones, and other community members that we work with or that we um, you know, are, are living with at home too. So no, those are, those are good points. I'm glad you brought those up because it's, it's really important for us to take this very seriously. You know, we, we hear all the time about flattening the curve and really what that the purpose of that is really to not overwhelm our healthcare system. I mean, if, if we had unlimited healthcare resources, um, it might be better as a society just for everybody to get this and get it over with so that we can get um, back to normal. But we don't have that capacity. There's no way that we could prepare and plan for that type of a surge. Um, other countries have tried that. And, um, you know, it's, it's like years ago, um, you know, with chickenpox, uh, my parents would send me to uh, the neighbor's <laughs> house that did have chickenpox yeah. just to expose me, just so I would get the, the virus and to be able to develop an immune uh, system to that. Um, I'm not saying this is the same, but it's, you know, it's something that, um, you know, we're, we're waiting for that vaccine. And again, just like every year we get our flu vaccination, that's for certain strains and that's always a guess that scientists try to predict what strain will be um, prevalent in the communities and then they develop that months and months in advance. Um, and the, uh, the, I think the uh, efficacy rate of, uh, of the flu vaccine is somewhere around 50%, you know? So it's, uh, there's not gonna be a silver bullet here to, to cure this um, or to prevent this moving forward. Yeah, that's that's the thing that we certainly don't know what it'll look like in the future. But you you talked about definitely individuals, you know, 
doing what they can because we're in this together for one and we all have a role to play. I've been so impressed with our community members that are making masks for their neighbors. I, I, I was at my house and I, I went outside to go get the mail and here I see a, a bag of homemade masks, two of them, um, for the, me and my partner that live in the house and a neighbor you know, made them for us and that was really nice. But there's people out there that can't go to, the, that shouldn't go to the grocery store because they're either a presumed positive or they're positive. And we see community um, crisis uh, in food bank. Services have delivery options now. We also see some students, University of Iowa students that are doing pickup deliveries and there are some shopping carts. I don't know what else is out there, but uh, there are ways for people to safely uh, get materials and you know critical uh, food in their home without going into the public if they're positive or been presumed positive by a doctor. So I've been impressed with our community. Yeah, I would have to agree, Bruce. I mean, um, not only the sacrifice that they're making, um, you know, for their neighbors, but also just the ingenuity, the creativeness of this community um, is is impressive. Um, you know, they are stepping up and, and helping helping other individuals, donating their time, donating their resources. And, um, you know, as you said so many times before, we are in this together and we all have a part uh, to play, not only in the prevention, but also to help our neighbors and family members and, and those in the community that we may not know personally, um, but there's so many different ways to help. And if anybody is, is uh, looking for ways. I know the United Way, their volunteer services in Patty Fields um, is really doing a lot of that coordination as well. Um, but there's just so many different organizations. The hospitals have ways that uh, individuals can can uh, volunteer to make uh, PPE as well. So you're absolutely right. It, it's it's uh, really um, reassuring and, and uh, it's, it's such a positive aspect of this community. I know people in our community are they're getting a little weary because we've been in this you know kind of stay at home and and uh you know wear your mask and i even wear gloves when i go to the grocery store um i just to take those extra precautions but i think it, it really does need to be done at this time that we're, we think we're going to be here for a while and so everyone out there please continue to do what you can um so that we can keep our numbers lower. It, it is true that the numbers that are out there are not accurate. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's, that's just, that's a fact. Yeah. And so I think we just have to continue to make sure that we're doing all that we can to keep ourselves safe. And in, in return, we're keeping others safe by wearing a mask. And mm -hmm. so that's a message that I'm sure that you would echo as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and you're right, the, the numbers are not accurate. Um, we, we just, we simply don't know how many people out there are positive. Maybe they've had it and they've already covered it, recovered from it, um, which, which again, just reiterates the fact that we need to do everything we can. Um, just assuming that it's out there amongst us uh, when we go to the grocery store or other things, um, which it's not comforting, I understand that. Um, and we do need those numbers. We do need that accuracy. And, uh, you know, my, my hope is that um, here fairly soon we can, we can have 
um, this, the, the necessary supplies to increase our testing across the state. So we know that knowledge is power, right? Um, the more people have information about Corona, the COVID-19 virus, you know, the better it is. I understand at the University of Iowa, they have interpreters that will give information in the individual's preferred language. What are some of those resources when we're talking about ensuring that everybody that we can possibly give resources and information to in, in their preferred languages? What are some of those resources and where can they go for that? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a number of different places I think that people could probably go to. CDC does have some of the resources in several languages. Iowa Department of Public Health as well. We've, uh, we've utilized all of those resources as well, as well on our website. We've, if you go to the main page of Johnson County Public Health, there's a link there to our COVID-19 webpage where we've got every press release and all the documents, uh, many of which are in several different languages. Um, and so those, those are a couple of resources. 211 that United Way manages is also another resource that individuals can call to. Uh, but uh, th those are the those are the main ways that people can um, certainly get information. Um, and if that's uh, you know not the preferred way, um, certainly give us a call if there's other ways or other things that Johnson County Public Health can do. We'd we'd entertain that and like to to know how we can get that information out. Yeah, I think it's important that we all get information that we can understand, and so that we can do our part. That's what we're talking about. Everybody has a road to a road to play and we can do our part to make sure that we can get past this and so thank you for doing your part <laughs> you you have been at the at the helm of this so much that we really appreciate all that you're doing and the and the guidance that you're giving our community to keep us safe so dave i want to say thank you so much for all that you're doing well, thank you, Mayor, for your leadership as well and for those kind words. Um, it, it's, there's a lot of people here at Public Health. As you can imagine, it's not just one person, but uh, I will share that sentiment and those kind words with, with the other staff here, and, and we really appreciate that as well. Thank you for joining me today. appreciate it. Thank you, Mayor. That's our show for today, but you can find additional resources from health experts on our website, icgov.org slash coronavirus. We also post information on city closures and response efforts on that page as well. We'll be back on Thursday with another Community Connection. I'll be speaking with Johnson County Auditor to discuss how to safely vote in the upcoming primary election. Until then, stay in place, maintain your space, cover your face, be safe, Iowa City.